Certainly it is an honor and a privilege that each of us have to appear in the presence of an assembly like this one, to appreciate that the most important person, of course, being, if you will, in the audience, is none other than the God of heaven. For indeed, we can recall in the 89th Psalm, verse 7, how great it is to, in fact, gather the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Of course, that's speaking with respect to God. And today, as we have this opportunity of the first day of the week, might I ask us to think about a lesson entitled, as you noted in the bulletin, as well as what's on the wall to my left, thankful for Jesus' love. You might have noted in the prayer that was led a few moments ago, a statement was made about being thankful for what the Lord has done for us on our behalf. I thought this morning we might direct our attention to three special considerations that really direct our attention to thinking about how thankful we should be for the love of Christ. Some introductory thoughts that might prepare us to consider those three ideas would in fact be these. We understand how marvelous the Word of God is in its 66 beautiful chapters, or its beautiful books, and that which we can appreciate to be revealed as the truth of God in the Holy Word of God. And as Jesus is the central theme and subject of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, it is in that case we can see so clearly that He is the central figure, and one could in fact preach many, many sermons and studies about Him. With regard to His opportunity and the way He interacts with people, one could make note of His compassion, His concern, His care, and the personal interest He has in each and every individual. One could also speak at length about the dedication that He in fact lived in regard to the law beneath which He served. He lived as a Jew beneath the law of Moses, and to that law He kept it perfectly, every element, every iota of it. Thus, that indicates to us how important it is to be submissive to truth. One could, of course, speak at length about the new covenant of which He spoke, the one predicated upon His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, that gospel that we acclaim so highly. As you think about all of those attributes of the Savior, all of those considerations of Him, might I ask that we give some thought to His love seen in three rather interesting ways at least. And as we look at them, perhaps two of them come to mind pretty quickly. It may be the third one hasn't yet occurred to you. We shall get to that one last. As we look at these attributes, these ways to consider the love of Christ, might I redirect you to that text that was read earlier. From the third chapter of the Ephesian letter, beginning in verse 17, we notice that one of the most beautiful anthems descriptive of Christ to be found anywhere in the New Testament, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ. That love passes knowledge, the text says, and the whole goal of appreciation, in fact, ends in that very next verse by, in fact, challenging us with this language, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice the last two verses, in addition, that carry it to an additional height. Now to him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Notice how great the power of God is presented. To what end? Verse 21. In the church might be known, in fact, the greatness, the mystery, the wonderful character of the Christ. Unto Him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As Paul, in fact, set before us those thoughts, 
Notice again with me, he said, this love of Christ that passes knowledge. I fully confess to you, and I'm sure you would do the same, that in our finite mind at this point, we can get an inkling and some appreciation of the magnitude of Christ's love. I suspect we shall have to wait till heaven to fully appreciate it in all of its splendor. But might I ask today that we look at three avenues that the Scriptures tell us present to us the love of Christ and allow those avenues to in fact carry us to an appreciation of thanksgiving, which we as a nation celebrate this Thursday, but perhaps we as Christians can have a better appreciation for thanksgiving that maybe we have had even in, in times past. With those thoughts in mind, let's look at the first avenue that highlights for us the na nature of of the Lord's love for us and how thankful we should be to it. First of all is His, His humanity. Let's begin by noting this. John 4.24 affirms for us, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We are there immediately reminded, God is a spirit. We understand that God is not in fleshly form like you and I currently are. He exists in the marvelous realms of heaven as a spirit being. And notice that to say that God is a spirit immediately challenges us to ponder, what about the Holy Spirit? And what about the Son? What about all three members of the Godhead? Are they not all in the original outset of time considered as spirit beings? Consider with me some of these passages and verses. If we revisit the opening chapter in all the book of God, let us make man in our image, reads Genesis 1.26. And in that opening verse of the Bible, we notice that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. And that word God is plural. It has reference to more than just what we would call the Father. All of the members of the Godhead were active and alive and fully regarding the character of the creation. And thus we appreciate Christ apparently in every way was in spirit form, a spirit being on that, in, in, in that character of time. And those matters tell us that in regard to that spirit, notice what else can be affirmed. Later in the Old Testament, in Zechariah 13, 7, it is especially there noted, speaking of the second member of the Godhead, that he is the fellow of the first member of the Godhead. There was an absolute equality in every regard. Indeed, there were different works. Christ, of course, principally involved, it would seem, in the creation. For Paul, in that inspired letter of Colossians 1, tells us that was, without him was not anything made that was made. And are we not told in John 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Christ had all the equality being a member of the Godhead with the other two members of that Godhead. Absolutely great, omnipotent, omniscient, and awesome in every regard. That gives us some great appreciation, doesn't it, of the placement of the second member of the Godhead. And in that placement, we can furthermore appreciate the greatness that was to be seen in it. It is in that regard, though, that we encounter passages such as Psalm 2, verse 7, where in the Old Testament made a prophecy that there would be a time when that second member would be called a son. There would come a time when he would be recognized as the son of God. In fact, that very text is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, 
and we are thus immediately in the appreciation that as great as the second member of the Godhead was, there would come a time he would clothe himself in humanity. There would come a time he would divest himself of all the glory that went along with being the second member of the Godhead in its fullness of that glory. And he would become flesh and blood. He would become in the form of humanity. We can appreciate in regard to that thought this text from the pen of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 2, let's begin in verse number 5. After looking at the passage in its fullness, we'll revisit verse number 6 in particular. But on that occasion, Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Pausing at verse number 9 then, to revisit verse 6. Listen to the way that verse is rendered in the American Standard Translation of 1901. It reads as follows. Speaking of Christ, He counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is to say, he didn't cling to or hold to that character in its glory of being on an equality with God. But Paul, what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. Notice that Paul thus asserts that that second member of the Godhead, in a sense, divested himself set aside, if you will, some of the greatness of the glory that he had so that he could come and be made in flesh and blood. And he could, of course, execute God's plan for human redemption. I would submit to you in regard of a statement like that one, ought not we be eternally thankful for Christ's love that he loved Randy Bybee enough to set aside the greatness of equality with the Father to come here and die for me at Calvary, to take upon himself the form of flesh and blood. That is a magnificent thinking point, isn't it? Notice in the last two verses I've asked us to consider on that slide. In Hebrews 2 verse 9, speaking again about the Christ, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. It is in the opening part of that verse I would ask you to notice. He was made a little lower than the angels. Question. Was Christ in the initial glory greater than the angels? Sure he was. The Hebrew writer said that in Hebrews 1 verses 5 and 6. However, it was said there that in the form of flesh he was made lower than the angels. So Christ apparently chose to give up some of the greatness of the glory that he had, so he could be flesh and blood like you and me. That's a great statement of how much he loved us, isn't it? That's a tremendous consideration to set aside equality with God, being how great God is in all his awesomeness, in all of his omnipotence, in all of his omniscience. Christ set part of that glory aside and in fact was made in the likeness of you and me. That's the very point of Hebrews 2.14, isn't it? Speaking there again of the Christ, of the second member of the Godhead, we read that he himself also likewise took part in the same, 
took part in what? In what same? In flesh and in blood. May we thus never cease to be thankful for Christ's love for us, that he was willing to divest himself of some of that greatness of glory that he could be made in a form like you and me. That element of Christ's love is truly marvelous, gigantic, and magnificent. However, that's not the only way in which we can appreciate the love of Christ. For I would ask you to consider with me yet another aspect and another approach to that same love. This one, of course, seen rather majestically in the character of his death. We've already noted that Christ, in the first part of our lesson, divested himself of some of that glory and was made as a man. He was born, of course, in Bethlehem to Mary, and he proceeded to grow. In Luke 2.52 we read, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up as a little boy, on into a young adult, and finally into a man. As our Savior, of course, grew and lived here upon earth, we do very well understand, though, that the end of that life did come. The end of his existence in the flesh came. All four gospel accounts close by giving us that rather graphic image of him hanging on a cross. Though he was innocent of all the charges levied against him, though he in fact was not guilty of those things that were claimed to be crimes against humanity and against man, of them he was absolutely innocent. And yet, we well remember that to that cross he submitted himself, and to that cross he went. Consider some of these passages that tell us again about the magnitude of Christ's love in the nature of his death. In Romans, the fifth chapter, two particular verses capture our attention as we think about those ideas. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, Paul wrote in verse 6 of that chapter. Two verses later, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We notice several points, not the least of which is this. We were without strength. We had no hope of, in fact, meriting, deserving in any way, or bringing about our own salvation. And yet Christ died for the ungodly. He died there for you and for me. In that verse number 6, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can we not thus see in the nature of that death outside the walls of Jerusalem about 20 centuries ago the greatest single statement, arguably, of the love of God that there could ever be? The greatest single statement of the love of this Christ for me there could ever be. He went to the cross with all of its shame and all of its difficulty and all of its oppression, all of its misery, all of the agony that went along with it. The Lord willingly accepted all of it. Perhaps that Roman letter also raises a rather, a rather impressive question. In the closing five verses to chapter number 8, Paul begins it with this question, and he will end up answering it in the very last verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Good question, isn't it? Who on earth or elsewhere can separate you or me from the love of Christ? Let's let the inspired penman answer it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul wrote, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where, I wonder, is the love of God to be found? Paul said it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest single manifestation of the love of God of, of all is to be seen in the person and the sacrifice and the marvelous gospel based upon, the, upon His Son, Jesus Christ. As you think about then that love with me and what it prompted Jesus to do, we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In that statement, we notice the following thought. I've listed it for your consideration. Jesus gave himself. We ought never lose sight of that fact that in the interesting shades of Calvary, it's not as if the Lord was forced to go to that cross for me. It's not as though he was forced inevitably to that by Pilate or anyone else. The Lord made that choice. He gave himself. In fact, did he not say that in John the 10th chapter? He said, I lay my life down. No man can take it, but I lay it down of myself. The Lord voluntarily took my place on that cross. And he voluntarily took your place on that cross. That's a statement of His love. He loved me enough that He knew I couldn't be saved otherwise. And He knew you couldn't be saved otherwise. That degree of love is seen then in what you see written there for your consideration at the bottom of that screen. In His humanity, we saw He took upon Himself the form of flesh and blood. He set aside full equality with, with the Father, with the first member of the Godhead, and took upon Him the form of man. Now in this second instance, we've seen not only did He do that, but as a man He now humbled Himself to death, that death of crucifixion on the cross. These two things have pointed us so directly to the greatness, the magnitude of Christ's love for us, things that of course we should be greatly thankful for. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse number two, notice, in fact, how this is stated in such a positive fashion. I'd like to read that and ask for your consideration of it. Ephesians 5, verse number two, he says, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ loved us, Paul wrote, and in that love, what did he do? He furthermore said, he gave himself for us as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Remember, earlier we noted that you and I were filthy, undone, ungodly sinners, and yet because of Christ's love, we appear by virtue of the sweet-smelling sacrifice that Christ made for us. You and I can appear just and righteous and associated with him. Oh, how thankful we should be for the love of Christ, that He loved us enough to do these two things for us. However, I might submit to you that there's another thing that we seem to see in the New Testament that highlights Christ's love. 
This one again may be the one that may appear to be a bit new to, to us as we ponder it, to think about it, to at least look at some of the passages, mostly from the pen of the Apostle Paul. What other way might the love of Christ seem so great, and why should we be so thankful for it? To gain yet another perspective and an image on that love, might I ask you to ponder the placement of the second member of the Godhead as the Son. We mentioned this earlier as we looked at the fact that the Old Testament had prophesied that that second member in Psalm 2 verse 7 would in fact be stated to be the Son of God. Let's now put some passages together and look at what that seems to suggest. First of all, we notice in that opening set of thoughts on that slide how greatly Jesus is presented to us in the Word of God. Anthem after anthem could be sung and raised to the glory of His being. Perhaps John in the Revelation does one of the best jobs of thinking about the greatness of the Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. To quote Revelation 5 verse number 12. Thus, as we see that lamb, that one that had previously been a lion of the tribe of Judah, now the lamb sacrificed for the sins of humanity, it's no wonder John the Immerser said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. It is in regard then to the greatness of the Christ. We furthermore notice in Revelation 17.14, as well as 1 Timothy 6.15, as well as Revelation 19.16, we read this statement. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. One certainly cannot doubt the greatness of the Christ. The absolute majesty of the second member of the Godhead and that which in fact being the role that he played in the creation and in the other attributes we see in the Old Testament. That brings us now to ask, when the second member became flesh and dwelt in bodily fashion here on earth, John 1, verse, verses 1 through 14, describes that thought to us. I've asked you to notice that it's clear from the lips of the Savior Himself that while here in the flesh, He submitted to the Father. He relinquished control and submitted completely and fully to the commandments, to the will, and to the dictate of the first member of the Godhead in heaven. Jesus Himself stated in John 14, 28, that He always submitted unto His Father. That in fact challenges us to notice one of the other statements that is found in the heart of the New Testament. We notice this hierarchy presented in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Notice there that we have the woman and her head is the man and man's head is Christ, but Christ's head is said to be God. There is a definite prescription of a hierarchy in which the second member of the Godhead is said to be lesser that is in the hierarchy than the first member. That challenges us greatly to ponder the choice that our Savior made, the choice that Jesus made in leaving heaven. We've already noted from Hebrews 2 verse 9 that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. While here in the flesh, though He in fact accepted worship from those like Peter and the other disciples who worshipped Him, it's clear He was God. However, there was an element of His greatness He had set aside in order to be made like you and me. When we discussed that earlier in the lesson, 
perhaps we were under the impression that that choice that Jesus made lasted only for that 33 years or so that He lived here in the flesh. When He was crucified and resurrected, when on that beautiful day of ascension, when He ascended back to the Father, did He return in fullness to the glory that He once had had? Or was His choice to leave heaven and come here and be made like you and me, did that have eternal consequences? I would ask you to think about these verses because I would submit to you if His choice to leave heaven and become a sacrifice for you and me, if that choice was not just limited in its consequences, but in fact had eternal consequences and ramifications, that perhaps to this day is the greatest single statement of how much He loved you and me. Notice some of the ways that the New Testament presents this idea. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, this is after the Lord's ascension back to glory. This was in fact immediately following the occasion when on that road to Damascus, Paul, that one formerly known as Saul, was baptized. His first gospel sermon, in fact, he said that this Christ is the Son of God. He didn't say He was. He said He is. He still, though again back to the great glories of heaven, occupied a position as being the Son and not, in fact, such that that description was no longer valid. He still was known as the Son. But furthermore, look at the next passage. In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 5, we notice on that occasion that speaking of Him as a mediator, He said, Christ Jesus is our one and only mediator. But what else did He say? We have one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Notice he again used a present tense verb, and he described him with an association to being a man. We certainly understand that when ascended back to heaven, Christ wasn't in the form of flesh and blood then, and he still is not. But he, when he took upon himself the form of humanity, he could then forevermore afterward be stated to occupy a role likened unto us. That is a magnificent thought. When he returned unto glory, notice furthermore in this passage in Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 11, especially verse 11, is it not the case on that occasion, he is made like flesh and blood, and we still can call association with him by virtue of that attribute of his being. I would ask you to read that passage with me. Hebrews 2, verse number 11. As the Hebrew writer penned it, it says, For both he that sanctifieth, that's the Christ, and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, when he ascended back to the Father, there was still an attribute of his existence in which he was identified with us. That choice, you see, that he made to become likened unto us in flesh and blood was a choice that was not just for 33 years, but forevermore he could be identified as and with us. And as such, that of course means that that sonship, that recognition of him as a second member of the Godhead, was truly a marvelous statement of his love. That's the choice that he made to come to this earth, to pay the price for your sins and mine. If you'll notice with me perhaps another passage, in Romans the 8th chapter, verses 17 and 29, we learn, speaking of that association, that you and I are joint heirs with Him. 
and that all of us, both he and us, are heirs of God. That puts an association of us with him in a way that could never have happened had he not left heaven and had he not, in fact, took upon himself that form of flesh and blood. It would thus seem, in light of these passages, that we've reached this conclusion, that when Christ divested himself of some of the glory that he had and came to this earth, that a part of the consequences of that were permanent. That is to say, it was not to be undone, and it was not to be put back to the way it was at first. Perhaps one passage that says these things as clearly as any other would be found in the First Corinthian epistle. In that great resurrection chapter of the Bible, let us give some thought and some attention to 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 27. As we read that verse, think again about what we've discussed, these passages that we have considered, and listen to how Paul states it here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 27. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's make some commentary notes upon that if we might. Beginning in verse 27, it says, For he hath put all things under his feet, that he is God, that he is as Christ. He hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, that he is the Father, which did put all things under him. So that statement seems so easily appreciated. When God said all things are put under Christ, well, clearly the one thing accepted is the Father Himself. The Father is not submissive to the Christ, to the second member of the Godhead. And let's let Him explain another attribute of it in the next verse. And when all things shall be subdued unto Him. So now He's taking us to the scene of the judgment. When the finality is over, all the dust is cleared and settled. We notice now that there have been those consigned to heaven, others, of course, consigned to that awful place called hell. Verse 28, When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. Here we have a scene at the judgment, which in fact seems to have great implications for all that will take place afterward. It says, Then the Son is still going to be subject to the Father. Notice with me, friends, Christ loved you and He loved me enough to take upon Himself the form of humanity, to die at the cross, but then to appreciate the fact that the submission of Himself to the first member of the Godhead was not just for 33 years. It had permanent ramifications. It will last throughout all eternity. And that's how much He loved you. He divested Himself of that glory, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. In light of those thoughts this morning, might we close the lesson by perhaps asking this. Perhaps in our finite mind, we simply can't plumb the full depths of Christ's love for us. It does pass knowledge, we're told. But in light of what the Scripture has pointed out to us, there are certainly these three things we can say. His love is shown so greatly in the fact that He became flesh and blood like us. 
Secondly, his love is seen so wonderfully in that he went to the cross for us. And lastly, his love in its magnitude is appreciated also by the fact that when he divested himself of that glory, it was, it was a permanent arrangement, never to be reinstated to what formerly was the case. That's how much he loved you. Have you then submitted to what he has asked and commanded you to do? The gospel plan of salvation sits before each of us today. In light of his love for you, ought not we in love simply do what he demands of us to be saved without question and without apology? This very day, if you have never rendered obedience initially to the gospel call of invitation, please ponder urgently the love of Christ for you, what he has done and what he asks of you. If we could assist you today in becoming a Christian, please note with me, he simply demands that you hear the word of the Lord. You, in fact, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You repent of your sins, you confess his name as the Son of God, and you be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. If we could assist you in that today, what a lovely day for you it would be, both in the present and from the perspective of eternity. If you have become a Christian, though, but as of today, you can't say that your love for Christ is what it ought to be. Maybe Christ, or in fact, maybe Satan has far too much control in your life. Maybe, in fact, the one sitting on the throne of your heart is not Christ at all. Maybe it is the devil. Today, if you need to come back to your first love, confessing error and sins in a public way to those who know about those mistakes, we'd be honored to pray with you. In fact, it'd be our privilege to pray for you. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways today, would you not take this opportunity to express your love to Christ and to His will by, in fact, making faithful obedience while together we stand and while we sing?